What's up guys, Dalton here. Before we hop into this episode of the PT Coffee Cast, I just wanted to touch base with you and say thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Whether this is your first time listening or you've been rocking with us since day one, we appreciate your support. Every like, comment, share, subscribe, whatever it is, truly does mean the world to us and it continues to push us to put out the best possible content for you guys. Before we hop in, I just want to talk to you about our partnership with Physio Network. Physio Network is on a mission to improve physiotherapy standards worldwide. They do this through their research reviews. If you sign up, you'll get 12 research reviews per month in both written and audio form. Articles are selected and appraised by industry experts such as Sandy Hilton, Mary O'Keefe, Tom Goom. Um, former PT Coffee Cast guests such as Teddy Wilsey, Sam Spinelli, Jared Hall, Tom Walters, and plenty more. They're clinically relevant and recently published, and they take less than five minutes to read one review, saving you hours of work. This also solves that problem that we all struggle with. How do we stay up to date with the research? Physio Network has you covered. They also give you access to a members-only Facebook group, and you can do quizzes that will get you CEU points. They got it all. If you guys are interested in trying out Physio Network, you can start your seven-day free trial now by using the link in the show notes or our bio on Instagram. This will give you the option to play around, see what you like. Do you like listening? Do you like reading? And just seeing the amazing content that they give you guys, and then you will join because Physio Network is amazing. We love to hear from you guys. If you have signed up for Physio Network, please let us know how your experience has gone. We'd love to hear, and we can pass on that information to them. Also, we are super pumped to finally announce the release of the Movement Coffee Club. What is this, you ask? This is a way that you guys can continue to connect and support the PT Coffee Cast community. So we have three clubs available for you guys. We have the Espresso Club, which each month you will get a personal message from Will and myself thanking you for the support the second club we have is the cafe club where you get everything in the espresso club as well as a shout out on an episode put on the list of the coffee club supporters and a bonus episode each month and then lastly we have our favorite club the mug club you get everything in the first two clubs as well as a pt coffee cast mug a monthly coffee subscription of our own coffee blend and a monthly mug club zoom call The reason why we put this club out is we want to continue to develop ways that we can connect with you guys, the community, as well as have an opportunity for you to support us, um, show us some love, and allow for us to continue to develop and put out the best possible content. You guys can support us for as little as $3 a month. This money is going to go directly back into the podcast for new things like audio equipment, video equipment for better video content, merch, coffee everything's going to go back into the pt coffee cast so we can continue to provide you guys with some pretty cool opportunities if you're interested in supporting us you can check the link in our bio on instagram at the pt coffee cast or at the movement pts and click the coffee club as well as in our show notes of each episode we'll have a link there for you to head over and join guys thank you so much for the continued support and we hope that you enjoy this episode of the pt coffee cast Welcome to the Movement PT Coffee Cast, where we sit down and talk about physical therapy, health, and whatever else comes to mind during our coffee-infused conversations. Welcome. 
What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the PT Coffee Cast brought to you by The Movement. My name is Dalton, and alongside me today is my beautifully bearded friend, William. William, how are we doing today? Feeling a little older than I was yesterday. Yeah, we got a big birthday in the house as of the recording today. September 16th, William turns... 29. 29 years young. I got him a little coffee for the podcast, you know, brighten his day up, wish him a happy birthday, so... I'm excited to, uh, to podcast on your birthday. Yeah, it's good. I'm always game, you know, and I think, uh, I actually haven't podcasted in a little while, Yeah, you know, but I think this is an important topic, something that needs to be talked about. So here we are. Yeah. So on that note, we'll, uh, we'll bring on our guests. So today we have Maggie Bergeron. She's the owner of Embodia as well as a physiotherapist here in Toronto. Um, we've had Maggie on the podcast before, like throwing it way back to the early days of the PT Coffee Cast. So we're bringing it back around. We're excited to have her on um, to talk about the current uh, PCE situation and, and kind of re-update all of you know the listeners and, and kind of have a conversation around that because it's continuing to be a, a little chaotic, let's say. So Maggie, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy birthday. Excited to share part of the day with you. Thank you. Appreciate it. You're so young. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> know. Yeah, it's like, but it, it, each year, you know, it's like, I feel like I celebrate the birthday a little less. I'm like, <laughs> all right, you know, time can stop anytime now. <laughs> Slow it down. <laughs> um, yeah, Maggie, why don't you, why don't you do just a brief introduction of yourself, give some background for, for people who may not have listened to your first episode, and then we can dive into all the other stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So as mentioned, I am a physiotherapist in Toronto. I do own a practice that I continue to run and I uh, am currently actually supervising three PT residents, uh, two who work with me in my practice and a a third who's in a uh, different practice, but uh, we do some mentorship uh, together. Uh, I, what I spend most of my time on is Embodia. So uh, Embodia is a platform for physiotherapists and their patients. We provide uh, the tools, resources, and uh, content that physios need to uh, support their patients as well as online continuing education. And we just launched our EMR and practice management system. Yeah, it's crazy to think how far Embodia Mm -hmm. has come since we first met you, right? Like, I think we first met back in our second year of physio school and you came to Western for the business uh, day that Daryl always puts on. And then, you know, we connected from there, but it's crazy just to hear all that growth since day one. It's been a, it's been a ride. Yeah. It's been a fun ride an adventure. And it's fun to see you guys grow too um, with the movement and your uh, podcast as well. Yeah. It's a wild ride is a good way to, way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Not that long of a time, really. Yeah. Like a couple of years ago and yeah. Congrats on all the, you know, development with it on Embodia, you know, before we get into everything else, it's, it's just cool. It's really cool to see that, you know, you put that out there and with the practice management software, like that's, I can't imagine that being a, uh, you know, a weekend project. So <laughs> No, we built Embody Academy over the Christmas of 2017, so about four weeks. But uh, yeah, the practice management system was a much longer project. (laughs) 
it's still being like still adding features and so on, but with users and with growth at this point, that's exciting. What has been, what has been your favorite part about it so far? I'm, I'm curious. This is my own kind of curiosity. What have, what's been your favorite part of the growth so far over the last couple of years? I'd have to say it's the growing interest from the profession in not just technology, like yes, we're a tech platform, but in thinking about providing care and providing uh, different avenues for physiotherapy. So not necessarily just one-on-one -on -one care, but how can we do this virtually? But what about group classes? What about other ways that we can support our patients? Uh, there's a lot more conversation about it, which is exciting. And there's, I'd say there's a lot more innovation within the profession and openness to trying new things, uh, which has really been spurred on by, unfortunately by COVID, but that's maybe one of the silver linings of, of the COVID pandemic. Well, I could see that because when you're so immersed in it, like you're seeing all this innovation because your platform is having people come on to talk about it. So you get the opportunity to like really see what's coming to the forefront. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm embedded in the Toronto tech scene. So I get kind of that side, like the tech entrepreneur side, which has a different vibe than the PT entrepreneur side, but I'm seeing some similarities emerge from the, the PT industry and uh, maybe a bit less fear of pushing the boundaries a little bit. I think that we've typically been kind of bound by our colleges and scared of, of the guidelines. And generally we're rule followers. I think as physiotherapists, our, our general culture is that we are rule followers. So sometimes it's hard to take that leap and like, oh, maybe I'll just step out a little bit and try something that hasn't been done or that's a bit different. Um, but I see a lot more, like particularly the new grads and um, recent grads interested in trying things in a different way or seeing if they can support their patients uh, with something outside of the traditional model of care. Yeah, and I think it's exciting that people are stepping out and doing that and trying to push those boundaries, obviously, in the right and respectable ways. But like, I think it's a really good thing for the profession because, you know, we've been, we've preached this for a long time about how much more we think we can do to serve people's health as physiotherapists. Um, and I think continuing to push that is just, it's nothing but good for our profession if done in the right way. So maybe opportunity for a whole separate podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah sorry I, I could go off on all that stuff I love it but yeah with regards to like new grads and you mentioned having residents and obviously the the, the purpose of our, our conversation today was talk about yet again another cancellation of the PCE and holding PT residents back from becoming fully licensed physiotherapist. And I know you've been really a big advocate for the residents um, trying to dive into all this stuff to, to be a voice. And, um, you know, just as recent as yesterday, I know you guys held a webinar with Daryl and um, another, another individual who I'm blanking on his name, but I know you guys were, were diving into that. So I wanted to kind of jump in and just have you maybe update or give some thoughts on the current situation that just occurred with the, with the residents. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, on September 8th, I'll just give a bit of a timeline first. So September 8th was the relaunch of the virtual clinical PCE exam. And the plan 
put out by uh, CAPER or CAPER, I, I know it's said both ways, or C-A-P-R, uh, was to do this in small groups. Now, I'll have to say that there was a lot of confusion about how many people were doing this exam on September 8th. There were conflicting posts by CAPER that there was 12 participants and 24 participants. In the end, it was 24. But to me, this actually speaks to part of the issue within our regulators. The inability to actually communicate how many people are taking this exam seems like uh, a fairly simple thing to do. So 24 uh, residents did the exam on September 8th. Fewer than 50% were able to successfully complete that exam. And there was lots of tech failures. So more than 50% were unable to complete the exam due to technical failures on the platform. The next exam was planned to be run on Saturday, September 11th, which they did run. And again, with 12, a group of 12 in the morning and a group of 12 in the afternoon, there weren't any reports coming out during the day. So we didn't actually know what was happening. Um, we still don't know why, but ultimately on Sunday, we found out uh, that Sunday or Monday, we found out that there were, again, lots of technical failures about the same as day one. Uh, so not even 50% of the candidates making it through the exam due to technical failures. The next day for the exam was meant to be on Tuesday, September 14th. And uh, that was the day that CAPER called it quits. So they threw in the towel and said, we cannot run this exam. They actually started sending out uh, automated cancellation emails on the Monday, I believe. So the day before the exam was meant to run, September 13th, residents started uh, messaging with reports that they were receiving uh, an email saying that their exam had been canceled. Again, these were automated emails from the ProctorU system. It took us a little bit to actually confirm if that was true, because in the past, in the previous round in March, there had been some issues with emails going out by accident, telling residents the exam had been canceled. So we waited, confirmed, and it was true. Again, this is speaking to an issue with communication. As somebody who leads a company, and I think as most physiotherapists could see and most residents would have expected, a keeper would have put out a statement first to let residents know instead of leaving them in this very odd limbo position of and stress of is my exam canceled I'm supposed to do it tomorrow or some are receiving it that we're going to do it in a few days and you know they're messaging myself and others in the industry to let us know and to ask do you know if this is true this to me is completely inappropriate so first of all keepers should have put, put out a statement first their statement did come out later uh, some residents still didn't receive the cancellation email till later that night or even a few days later. So causing more confusion, which is completely unnecessary. Confusion and stress. So my heart broke for the residents. Um, I spoke to many who were supposed to do it the next day on the 14th, and I just didn't know what to say to them. They were ready, they had prepared, they had studied many times. Uh, for many, this was the fourth time going through this process, setting their plans, their personal plans, even work plans aside. You need to take some considerable time to study for this exam. I did this exam, you guys did this exam. It's not something that you just 
pick up and do. You need to make sure that you know your material and take time to study. So a complete destruction in their lives only to be let down again. The concern right now is, and the concern immediately on Tuesday was uh, the mental health of residents. We did start to receive reports and messages and I received personal messages of people just feeling absolutely destroyed and unsure uh, even what to do. The report from Keeper or the message from Keeper was that they will not be running the virtual exam and they will be waiting until they can deliver an in-person exam again. This therefore, and they passed the buck to the colleges. So they said at this point, it's the responsibility of the colleges to license clinicians within their own province. So the, the concern and still remain one of the primary concerns right now is how do we support residents? How do we provide them with the resources that they need? And last night on the webinar, as you mentioned, Daryl Yardley, Mike Landry, and I ran a webinar, uh, which was initially going to discuss the future of the PCE and what licensing could look like uh, in Canada going forwards. Now, Tuesday night, we quickly pivoted and switched the topic because of the recent events and decided to focus more on what is the immediate, right? This becomes far more important right now. What are the things that we can do to support residents? And the second part of this webinar was actually providing factual information. What is happening across the country? What has happened in the different provinces? What is the plan and how does CAPER and the colleges work together? So that was also explained wonderfully by a Queen's professor on the webinar last night. Um, so we decided to do it that way because we felt like that was the most immediate need. We are gonna put out a summary of the webinar with some video clips from it. So anybody who can attend can, can watch that. It should be out early next week. Yeah, and I think, you know, we would definitely will drive people toward that because obviously you guys spent a great deal um, putting that together and talking about it, which I'm sure, like you mentioned, they did a nice job summarizing all that stuff um, for people that attended. But the one thing, you know, I'd like to I'd like to touch on a lot. But the one thing that I want to where I want to go now, I think, is just like, what were you guys hearing in this webinar when you're asking for that information from people? Because I know you had people from different areas um, across. Was it across Ontario or even across Canada? Yeah, so we, yeah, we did a cross Canada tour. Nice. <laughs> we want to call it that. <laughs> so we started in BC and uh, we asked <laughs> the day before, the day of, I was asking people from different provinces to provide a two to three minute summary and update of what was happening in their province. So uh, we had, we didn't have anybody representing BC. So we just asked somebody and thankfully somebody from the audience came up to explain you know, BC had run their own exam. So prior to this most recent failure from uh, CAPER trying to deliver a virtual exam, BC had uh, decided to work with UBC to deliver their own PCE exam for the residents in BC. I think there, don't quote me on this, but I think there's about 65 or so residents who chose to do this exam. And therefore, if they passed, they can practice in BC. The question though is, can they then practice in other provinces? Uh, it seems as though it is possible through something called the Labor and Mobility Act. And that allows uh, 
basically provides rules around if you are licensed in one province, then yes, you can move to other provinces so long as there's similarities, right? Like our academic system, we have a system in which the 15 universities all teach in similar ways. So people are graduating with similar skills and knowledge. So it does seem that it is possible. I'm not too sure if uh, too many people have tried to cross borders yet. So we'll see uh, what happens. But ultimately, that decision is made by the college. So if you're in BC moving to Alberta, then you would be applying with the um, College of Alberta. Uh, then we went to Alberta and we had Tia, who was a resident who did the exam in Alberta, similar to BC after the March uh, failure of the CAPER exam. Alberta decided to partner with U of A and uh, provide their own version of the clinical exam to Alberta residents. Tia went through the exam and was successful. So she's practicing, but her message was that she has not forgotten about all of her colleagues and is here to support and is going to continue to push for change. Uh, from there, we went to Saskatchewan and Scotty Butcher joined us to um, explain what was currently happening there with the recent report that came out of Saskatchewan stating that um, the Saskatchewan College will not require the clinical PCE. Something that's really important to note is that some colleges back in the 90s wrote into the provincial legislation that the clinical and the written is necessary. So this is where some of the confusion comes in, right? Because residents rightfully so are saying, well, if Saskatchewan, the Saskatchewan College has made this decision, why can't we do that in Ontario? But in Saskatchewan, they don't have that in the legislation. So ultimately the college can make the, make the call. Right. In Ontario, it is written into our legislation that a physiotherapist must pass the written and the clinical component of the exam. Although there are still some questions about can the college override that and the fairness commissioner in Ontario did a review back in March after the first virtual failure of the exam by caper and I'd say some of those statements point to the college could make some decisions but with the Ministry of Health so it just becomes a little bit more complicated and I can see from the college's side how it requires uh, some government involvement, not some, it requires government involvement from the Ministry of Health. Uh, then we went on to Manitoba. Anna DeMarco, who's the incoming president of the Manitoba Association, gave us the update, uh, which is essentially there's no movement happening in Manitoba and there's a lack of communication from uh, the colleges and uh, lack of plan, let's say. Uh, we skipped over to New Brunswick. And uh, Will Howitt gave us an update on the New Brunswick situation, uh, which uh, is basically the New Brunswick Association, or sorry, the New Brunswick College has now said that they will license without the clinical exam any of the residents who have been waiting for longer than 18 months to do the exam. This is three of the 25 residents in New Brunswick. But interestingly, one of those residents is an IEPT, internationally trained. And one of those residents previously failed the clinical exam. Uh, so uh, interesting point of conversation for this, the validity of this clinical exam and what the colleges have always said is necessary to protect the public. Mm -hmm. uh, 
The rest of the residents will be in one of them in New Brunswick, who has been waiting, who hasn't been waiting 18 months, uh, are waiting. And the New Brunswick plan is essentially to wait for CAPER to deliver an in-person exam with no timeline in sight. Right, which could be whenever. Exactly. (laughs) And then we went over to Quebec. (laughs) So uh, we also had a recent grad uh, speak to the Quebec system, which did spark a lot of interesting debate. And Mike Landry is very well versed in the Quebec system, which was fantastic. I am less well versed. So I would encourage anybody who's interested in learning more just to read our summary, because we're going to be summarizing this particular PT, PT and Mike Landry. But in short, Quebec does not require the clinical exam. They haven't ever. Uh, in Quebec, you need to graduate from a university in Quebec. So Gill and uh, do the written exam, which is done in French, and uh, potentially a French language equivalency test. So for French language. And then once you pass that, then you're fully licensed and you can go anywhere in Canada without doing the clinical exam. Uh, I've also been provided with an excellent summary chart from uh, another resident about how that works across Quebec, because there's a few different rules in different provinces. If you're coming from Quebec, what's required, but in no, in no case is the clinical required. Uh, also during the pandemic, Quebec did offer some students, I'm not 100% sure on how they decided which students, but I, I suspect it's probably French speaking, but again, don't quote me on that. They offered some students at the University of Ottawa to do the Quebec exam. Um, in which case they became licensed and could practice in any province. Yeah, it uh, seems like a wild scenario everywhere. <laughs> it's almost hard to comment on because it's such, like, objectively, it's such a failure on an epic, epic proportion. Yeah. You know, that's like, where do you even, where do you even begin? <laughs> I can't imagine you know, from, from like a mental health standpoint, I think all of us having done the exam realize that the biggest thing about the exam is managing your anxiety because it's a stressful exam. There's a lot on the line and it's kind of hard to study for, you know, you can't just kind of like whip out a textbook. You have to be like, you have to meet with people to like, set up scenarios that you're not totally sure what's going to be on it. Uh, and like, if you fail, you, it's significant consequences. It costs a lot of money to have that be prolonged. Uh, for me, I would not be continuing as a physio. I, I can say that for a fact that I would have stopped. And this has happened for many. Um, Unfortunately, they've just decided to leave the profession. Um, I think some have left to go to other countries, uh, but there's certainly been, it's going to be interesting to see what our numbers are like as physios in Canada, because lots have been making that decision. And I, I can't blame them. This is a terribly stressful scenario to have to study and spend all of that time again, particularly when you've been um, practicing, (laughs) right? These, Many of the residents have been practicing for six months, 12 months, 18 months. There's a resident in Newfoundland who's been practicing for 26 months. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't seem like 
the empathy expressed by whomever is uh, proportional to what's going on. I agree. They have expressed their condolences and um, said that they understand and are empathizing with the residents, but their actions always speak louder than words. Say that, and even just in the, their communication to the residents, uh, it's not displaying that level of empathy. Uh, I'm sure that we've all seen the, or maybe not seen the CBC report in which Katia was quoted um, saying that basically residents just don't want to do the exam, which I've also been told by others at Keeper that um, you know the residents just don't want to do the exam and. I replied and said, I respectfully disagree. These residents just want to be licensed. Plain and simple. They would love to do the exam. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, there's two, there's two big things I wanted to, you know, I wanted to hit on was like this communication or the lack thereof and, and leadership as well. Um, but before we maybe comment on that, I, I would like to hear maybe, you know, what, how, what is the relationship between, let's say, the college and capital, you know, or however, I always mess up what we call it, but I'm going to call it capital. That's what I've always called it. Um, what's the relationship between the, those two um, and how this process kind of works? Yeah, absolutely. Diana Hopkins from uh, Queens gave an excellent overview of how capper became formed in the webinar last night. That will certainly be in the summary. But essentially, as it stands right now, CAPR is a not-for-profit organization that is hired by the colleges to perform a job, that job being deliver the clinical exam and the written exam. The colleges have chosen to hire CAPR, or rather the colleges actually in the 90s chose to form CAPR. And they formed it as a, a separate organization from the colleges so that it could be an, a national body. Perhaps that worked at the time. I can't comment on that. In the current times, it is not working. The CAPR board is made up of the colleges. So CAPR is reporting to the colleges, yet the colleges are the CAPR board. Each of the colleges nominate one of their um, I don't know if I should call them members or staff, uh, to the CAPR board, who then sits on the CAPR board and is responsible to them and to the colleges. As Tyrone uh, said in the CPO meeting, you cannot be the uh, master of two. You can only work for one, really. Um, this is such a conflict of interest. It's been a, a big point of debate and something that a lot of people are certainly looking into. As I said, maybe it did work when they initially formed it. I'm not sure. But in the current times and uh, based on our current needs as a profession, this will no longer work. Right. And ultimately, see, what I didn't know was the, the um, how you were saying things were tied into legislation. Like, I think that I can see where that makes things a lot more difficult. Because from what I what I understand is like the college has the ability to be like, hey, these these guys are good. They can go through without technically doing the 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 uh, practical exam, but some of them can't do that because you're saying it's tied into legislation. Is that correct? 
Correct. It's written into the legislation. So we would need the legislation to change, which I don't know how long that takes, but that does require that the college work with the Ministry of Health within their province uh, to get that legislation changed. Now, in Ontario, back in March, the Fairness Commissioner of Ontario did a review of the situation and made some recommendations. One of these recommendations was that the CPO, the College of Physiotherapists of Ontario, work with the Ministry of Health. And at that time, this was following the virtual exam failure, the CPO had not reached out to the Ministry of Health. To me, that's a failure in itself. I have so many questions about why wouldn't they have reached out and been working towards some contingency plan, backup plan, at least working towards some other options. I'm not involved in their meeting, so I can't speak for them, but I certainly have questions about what actually was happening behind closed doors at the college to make sure that we didn't end up in this current situation. Because right now we're basically back at square one, where we were a year ago with no plan. On Monday, so again, the caper called the exam off and threw in the towel on Tuesday. On Monday, the CPO put out a call for proposals. They put out a call for proposals asking for other vendors or organizations to submit a way to deliver the clinical exam. Um, Why we're not working with the universities, I'm not sure. The universities deliver OSCE style exams. So I don't know exactly why they were putting out external proposals. but I feel like there's other easier alternatives. At this time, the CPO is saying that they will deliver their own exam starting in January of 2022. In January. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's it's a wild thing because like, you know, you would exp- the one thing that I was talking about when we when we when we talked with Daryl last like a while back about this was like where where the college was in all of this and why why no one had been speaking up to advocate. And, and I went back and, and looked at just some of the releases that they, that they had put on their website. And even with like, um, like the, the CPA as well, it just always seemed like people were just like passing the buck or not really taking any responsibility for like the, the, the residents, which is our profession in the future. And that was kind of like disheartening to me. And now to like sit here and see the situation continue to develop with the lack of leadership that at least if someone would have stepped up and been like, Hey, however, this is going, like whatever happened to, to get us here, like we need to change something. We can't continue to do this. And the fact that, that, that we're again, sitting here and now the college is saying like, well, maybe we should look elsewhere or maybe we should run our own exam. It's kind of like, it just seems like a last kind of ditch effort by them, which is unfair for the residents, you know? Yeah. And the call, so again, the college is the one that's responsible. They are the ones that hire Caper and they are ultimately responsible for licensing physios. They are also responsible for licensing physio residents who would like to be licensed in a reasonable amount of time. And I don't think that there's anybody in their right mind who would argue that they have done this, that they have actually followed through on this. Um, I agree with you. This should, there should have been a contingency plan in place. Back in August, when Caper was getting ready to deliver their next virtual exam, we were asking, where is the contingency plan? What happens if this fails? Caper said that they would provide 
a contingency plan uh, on a certain date was not delivered. There was nothing released. Uh, we were asking again. Ultimately, they said it's up to the colleges. So it's up to the colleges to come up with the contingency plan. Yeah. Clearly, that didn't happen from the college's level either. Yeah, and and you know, you mentioned working with the with the universities and you know something that we've spoke on many times since we even started this podcast was in general questioning the exam itself. Um, you know, and I think now you we're seeing how much of that, like that issue continue to arise and, and, and hold people back. But I don't understand why the, the, the college wouldn't push to have a better conversation with the universities. Like we spend a lot of time in school doing all of the things that we need to do in order to become qualified and to work with people safely. It's like, why can't we review that, especially in a time of, of emergency where we need to get people out into the profession? Like, why can't that be reviewed and De- see if it, people are deemed competent, which my personal opinion, I think they are competent to go into the profession and do what they need to do. But that's just my opinion. The residents, of, and I supervise three residents and I, I've told, I have great, I've hired two of them. <laughs> I have great confidence in them and they are excellent clinicians. Um, so I agree. There was lots of conversation last night about um, extending a supervision program uh, in which we could license these residents, but then offer uh, some sort of mentorship, formal mentorship with reporting to the college. Um, Again, I guess it depends on the province and the legislation. I'm not 100% clear on whether or not they can make an exception in extraordinary times, but certainly this is extraordinary times. Uh, in terms of the research, the recent systematic review and meta-analysis by Bobo Sayal certainly is questioning the validity and re- reliability of uh, the exam. I'm not the best person to speak to on research, but I think there could be a really interesting conversation and debate with those who are well-versed uh, in research to have a conversation about this, as well as the other uh, papers that are out there about OSCE-style exams. Um, The one thing, though, that is very interesting about this paper is that they point out that Canada is the only country with a well-developed physiotherapy profession that has the clinical exam. So why, like, the question is, why is that? Why is Canada the outlier here? Well, you know, it's like, obviously, they need to research this and stuff, but like, is it really, it seems like a no-brainer to me. Like, if you just think about the differences between an OSCE style exam and actual clinical practice, it's not even remotely close. All it's doing is assessing your recall and your ability to answer the script in a short amount of time that's not realistic, where you cannot look to resources or communicate with your your coworkers, which is like, it's, it's impossible to replicate that fully other than to just be in clinical practice. And so in my mind, it's pretty obvious that like the written exam would be just as valid as the clinical to me, you know, and I think they can research it. They should research it, but let's be honest, you know, we all know. 
Especially when we do clinical placements as well, right? Where you're getting exposed to actual practice and being able to interact in those scenarios that you just talked about. It's not like we haven't been through that or the students haven't been through that before leaving, you know, university. And I think it could be worth looking into. Maybe we need to have a bigger component of that, right? Or whatever to deem deem these students more competent when they leave school if, if instead of having them go and do an exam that, you know, d- quite frankly, doesn't really deliver or, or evaluate in the same way that you would in clinical practice. Yeah, and actually in preparation for the webinar last night, I did reach out to many academics that I'll leave unnamed just to get their opinion on what would be an alternative. And uh, nobody said the clinical exam uh, should stay. Very consistently, though, this supervised or extended uh, mentorship with communication with the colleges came through um, quite strongly. And, you know, Quebec doesn't have the clinical exam, so it would be interesting to see, do they get more uh, complaints from the public against their PTs? Because that should also indicate whether or not the clinical exam is needed. It's a comparison at least that we can use. Mm. Um, you know, what, what do you, I mean, I don't, I know you don't have all the answers, right. But what, what do you foresee or what do you hope to see maybe over the next couple months in terms of like a response from the college or some form of positive, you know, direction for, for this whole situation? So I personally, so this is my personal opinion. I believe that we should license the physiotherapists. Let's just get it done. I know others want to just, let's just get an exam up and running, which I am fine with as well, but let's just license them. If we can license them under some sort of like extraordinary circumstance and let's just get moving on this. And so we can focus on what what the future looks like. I am hoping that uh, we have a major restructuring in our governance. I am no expert in governance of the profession, but I have certainly learned uh, a lot in the last year even of watching what is happening here. But it's quite clear that we need uh, a different governance structure. We also need more transparency from those in leadership positions, from those who are at the colleges and the regulators and our associations. Associations are meant to provide a voice to physiotherapists. And currently, I'm going to generalize, but from my understanding and from what I've been hearing, the majority of physiotherapists do not feel like the association is representing them or listening. This puts into question the relationship between, to me, this puts into question the relationship between the association and the regulators and what that actually looks like. I don't know, and I'm not sure uh, how much the CPA or provincial associations are actually at a decision-making table. I think that if we're gonna have change in our system, then we actually need an innovation group or a working group. Now. I can't remember when, but way back, Capers said they were going to put out an innovation group. I haven't seen anything of it. The CPO put out a working group, but the working group for the five members are or were part of the CPO. 
So if we put the same people trying to solve the same problem, we're going to come up with the same results. This to me doesn't make sense. Uh, so we need a complete revamp of uh, our governance structure. And I'm also hoping that more physiotherapists are interested in learning how all of this works and how their voices are heard. Because if we can actually, if we actually understand how it all works, then we can make, um, then we can be at the decision-making table, or we can at least inform the decisions that are being made on behalf of us. Yeah, no, I think that, that makes sense. And it's kind of, I would, I would agree with that that sentiment like i do think we should license the the current residents um it, you know under these crazy circumstances right and and i and i do agree like we need to completely reevaluate all of it but that shouldn't hold back this the current residents right like i think that's the biggest issue right now and we just need to move forward with that but i think as much of it, and I don't mean to, and I'm not downplaying, obviously, the significance of how this has impacted the current residents. It's it's blows my mind, and I couldn't imagine being in their scenario as like Will touched on earlier. You know, th there would probably be a chance that I also wouldn't have continued on if if that was the case. So I'm not downplaying that by any means, but trying to look at the silver lining of things. I think that coming out of this, we need to take it as an opportunity to again, as we talked about at the start of this podcast, better our profession put the innovation into the, the, the profession as well and consider all of those things so that we can restructure this and continue to move forward as a profession to better serve the public, to better serve the people in the profession. Um, so I think we really need to take that opportunity and I think more transparency and open conversations and more understanding of these things because like I had no understanding of it and still probably have very little, but the more that we can understand, the more we can advocate for ourselves, right? And advocate for the profession. So it is kind of a, a call on on all of us, to be honest, to make sure that we continue to, to push this thing in the right direction. Yep, absolutely. Because if we don't understand it, then it's awfully hard to fight for something different. Um, interestingly, there was a member of the public on our webinar last night, and he has sent me some messages asking questions about what's happening. Um, so I think, you know, there's been a few news stories. I think there's gonna be a few more that come out uh, in either local or potentially national uh, news outlets. So it's, it's getting the attention of the public. My accountant even called me and asked me what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> he had heard of it, not through me. Uh, so yeah, I think there, there is public attention. And from those that I've spoken to about this, they, they see the issues between our regulators and the structure of our profession. Um, Maybe there are members of the public who would be concerned. I, I would actually say there, there's very likely members of the public who would be concerned that there's not going to be a clinical exam. Um, but again, perhaps that's, uh, you know, we need to look at the, the full picture. So I agree with you. I think we just need to, let's just move on, help these residents, support the residents right now, attempt to get them licensed as quickly as possible, and then uh, restructure the way that we work as a profession. Definitely. Um, just to kind of wrap up, Maggie, like what is the, the timeline look like for you guys hosting more webinars or having conversations about this just so we can make sure that we point people in the right direction. Cause, cause you know, you, you guys have been doing an amazing job and in, in, in shout out to Daryl as well. Like I know he's been, he's been really pushing hard for this from the beginning and putting these webinars together. So I want to make sure that we continue to, to push people over to, to that as well. 
We don't have a set date for the next live webinar. Uh, we decided because of all the rapid changes this week that uh, we would just focus on last night. Let's get a summary out there so that more of our profession can understand what's currently happening. And then uh, if we do host more webinars, there, there always needs to be a purpose to them. So at the moment it's uh, TBD on a date, uh, but likely, we will. Um, I think the nice thing about last night and the feedback that we've been receiving was that it was uh, factual, but also kind of community based, right? We invited a lot of different people to speak. A lot of people uh, were experts in or had very deep knowledge in different areas, which is great because it is a complicated topic and there's lots of information. So I think we'll continue with that uh, type of dialogue, but I just don't have a, a date or even a topic for the next one. Yeah, no problem. That, that that makes sense. We'll we'll definitely just push towards where they can go and look at the summary and where the next potential webinar may may be for sure. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you. Awesome. All right, Meg. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your commitment to the profession as well as the, the current residents. I know that um, you know many people appreciate that. So so thank you so much for that and thank you so much for your time.